Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Talent Playbook Podcast. My name is Jason Ferrara. I'm the Chief Marketing and Strategy Officer at Outmatch and your host for the podcast. Our podcast focuses on strategies for transforming your world of work. So during each podcast, we highlight someone who has transformed their organization or industry in a significant way. Today's guest is Joni Doolin, the founder and CEO of TDN2K. I've had the pleasure of knowing Joni for the past several years. Her company, TDN2K, provides the restaurant industry with really rich HR benchmark data and sentiment analysis. But her real skill is bringing together fierce competitors in the restaurant industry and getting them to share successes and failures. Nothing, nothing is as energizing as a room full of competitive CEOs sharing their business plans and brainstorming on the future of their industry. It's very, very fun to see. Joni gives us some great insight in this podcast into how she thinks about change and how she uses change as a management and leadership tool. She suggests several great books all throughout the podcast. She tells us why she makes her bed every day, and it isn't for the reason that you might think. And she discusses why we need to stay curious in our lives. So I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation and Joni's insight. And without further delay, here's the Talent Playbook Podcast with Joni Doolin. Joni, thanks for joining the podcast. I appreciate you uh, coming on the podcast today. Um, I think the first thing that I'd like to do is to have you tell the listeners a little bit about TDN2K. I don't think they all will know the company, so it would be great to just start with a quick description. Happy to. So TDN2K, first of all, that is uh, an acronym that stands for, if you want to try to remember how to say TDN2K, it is Transforming Data into Knowledge. And the history behind that, um, TDN2K is the parent of three brands, our legacy brand being People Report, um, which potentially will be most germane to our discussions today. Then our brand that is financial intelligence, black box intelligence, and most recently white box social intelligence. So, you know, as we continued to add platforms to our business, um, we had to call it something <laughs> that pulled it all together. And hence, TDN2K, because we have long passed, you know, the point where we think of ourselves as, you know, our product is data. Um, we think of ourselves as our product is insights and um you know, what we can provide our member companies in terms of, you know, actionable information that they can use to drive performance in their businesses. So that's who we are and what we do. We are very, very deep in the restaurant industry. Um, and we think of ourselves, when we think about our own stakeholder map, one of our stakeholders is, in fact, the restaurant industry. And so thanks for that. That That's great to, to understand that in the brands. And um, I wanted to lock on to the T in TDN2K because you said that stood for transforming. And I, I don't I don't know what the naming process was when you were doing this. And, you know, you could have you could have chosen T for turning, you know, turning data into knowledge. Tell me about the use of the word trans, transform, transformation, transforming um, and, and where you see, you know, your your products, your work product uh, being transformative to the industry? Well, you got to the head of the class because nobody's ever asked me that <laughs> question before. It's a good one. You know, we have been focused for over a decade, but closer to 15 years, on how the macro business, not even just business, but how the macro environment of change, rate of change, pace of change, mm -hmm. um, impacts all of our work. 
and all of our outcomes. And, and so, you know, we started railing against change that was incremental, um, change that was, you know, going back to something that worked 10 years ago, change, you know, we, we, we really were focused on it has to be more. And we did, in fact, embrace the word transformation. And transformation relative to innovation, transformation relative to something that is bigger than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and we just feel that it is a more powerful description of what is possible. So um, I, I got two questions for two follow up questions for that. One of them is because I, I want to talk about the clients who use the data that you provide and who are the beneficiaries of of the you know bigger than the sum of its parts. But because we know each other's companies, you know, you call your clients members. So let's start by talking about that. Why why are they members and and not clients or or some other word? Well, you know, Jason, I I saw that question earlier. You had sent it to me, and you know, I had I had to think about it and go the whole way back to when we founded People Report because People Report is our legacy brand, and People Report is in fact a couple decades old. And when we founded People Report, it was to bring together a group of companies, but essentially a group of HR leaders who were willing to share in order to elevate not just their own brand, but the group. And it used to be, you know, there used to be a joke about joining People Report that if you join People Report, your turnover would go down. (laughs) And... You know, there there was a little bit of that mm-hmm. when you think about companies that were willing to make that investment at a moment in time when, you know, the whole world is driving around with their eyes closed. Right. I mean, Saratoga Institute had been founded three years before that. I mean, it, it was a very, very unique concept, particularly in the HR group. And so it was we always called it a consortium. Because we believe that's what we were creating. And as a member of that consortium, you know, that, that membership designation, again, it's a more powerful word. Um, it, over the years, you know, there's, there's always the plus and minuses. It's like being the member of a club. The good news is people think they're a member. The bad news is they think, if they think they're a member, that they get to run it. Yeah, they have rights. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, they have rights, <laughs> but that's, you know, that essentially that's also how we approach our business. So that was the genesis. Um, it's stuck, and I think it's probably even more apropos today than it was then. Yeah, you you hit on the, really the connotation of the word members as opposed to clients, and, and that I, you know, as we, as we go through this discussion, I want to, I want to draw out that, that the high touch that you have and the way that you treat you know, not only your clients, but the people that you know, because it, it definitely is meaningful to me that you refer to people as members, not clients. So, um, so let's connect the two things. So you've, you've got, um, transformational technology and data. You've got members. So how are your members benefiting from and how are they, how are you helping them transform their businesses with the data that you have? So tell us a little bit about the connection of those two. Sure. Well, I'll go back to, again, the original group of companies that founded People Report. And when we, you know, we set out to measure things as basic as turnover rates, compensation rates, you know, diversity mixes, um, you know, every little piece of data that you could possibly quantify about an employee in your business, there was a lot of mythology. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, everybody bet, it's like, you know, we know what the results are going to be. We know what the data is going to say. We know what companies will rise to the top. 
And in fact, when we gave out the first um, best practice awards, everyone knew who would win the award, right? Quote, in quotes, they knew mm-hmm. because the, that company was the sexy company. They were the, you know, and they were the darling of the industry at that time. Well, in fact, it was not a sexy company. It was sort of a boring company that no one ever expected. They just happened to have, you know, exceptional work practices. And as you dug into those practices, then we started to find out, whoa, it really does make a difference what your staffing levels are. It really does make a difference how many times you transfer people. It really does make a difference if you have a more diverse workforce. It really does make a difference if you target your compensation appropriately. You know, it's like all those things that we all thought we knew what the outcomes would be. And, and we found out in a lot of cases we didn't know what the outcomes were. And that was at the very beginning of people reports. So now you start to layer on the financial implications, the financial results, the connections to sales and traffic, um, and, and then layer in consumer data, information, feedback, connection. You know, you start connecting the dots between your employees and your consumer in a very big, real, tangible way. There's all kinds of things that you find out mm-hmm. that you did not know, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that you assumed you knew. Um, and, uh, you know, we continue, the more we are able to integrate our three platforms and the more of our members who are participating in all three of these platforms, we are able to see, you know, the insights get deeper, more relevant, more actionable every time we publish. Um, And so we know companies are utilizing this information in ways that can truly drive performance. So tell us about the Best Practice Award. What is that? Uh, Best Practices Award. So we did, I think the first one we gave out was in 1998. And candidly, the company was Red Lobster who won it. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, the company was affectionately known as Dead Lobster. <laughs> um, it, it was a, you know, a legacy chain that, right. you know, everybody just thought was sort of stalled and, you know, and, and lo and behold, it was a company where there was some pretty remarkable leadership. And, you know, they went through twists and turns, mm-hmm. but obviously had stayed the course to continue to be one of the best, most successful operating brands in the business. And a lot of that, you know, is directly connected to their people practices, Mm -hmm. which have been strong since the beginning. Um, So Red Lobster won one. The next year it was Cheesecake Factory, another, you know, another brand that at the time Cheesecake Factory won that award. I think they had 17 restaurants. 17 or 18 restaurants. So we've tracked a lot of companies through a lot of business cycles. The the awards themselves look at all the metrics that we track, all the quantifiable metrics. And then for the past eight years, seven or eight years, we have also been digging into additional practices that um, cover community involvement, employee engagement, sustainable business practices, you know, all of the other aspects that contribute to making a high performing company. Um, and so it's, you know, it, it's, it's always a pleasure and a privilege to go through the process of even isolating who is eligible for these awards and then who ultimately wins these awards because it's, um, you know, it, it's an MBA class in what high-performing companies are doing to achieve those results. Yeah, I've had the pleasure of meeting some of the some of the 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 business managers in those best practice award companies, and it is pretty incredible to talk to them and how how deeply they think about their business. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, and well, and the other thing, the one, yeah, they are, and you know, what we learned early on was 
it had not, and this goes back to destroying a lot of the mythology. It had nothing to do with segment. It had, you know, when we started People Report, casual dining was, you know, the it segment. I mean, all the sexy companies were in casual dining. Okay. Um, but over time, what we learned were it, it didn't matter if it's casual dining, family dining, quick service. It didn't matter if you had, you know, a guest check, a high guest check, a low guest check. It didn't matter. You know, none of that stuff really mattered in terms of ultimately who were the companies that rose to, you know, the cream of the crop. Mm -hmm. And it, it was leadership. Um, clearly there was, you know, there are some things going on in terms of the ownership structure, which, you know, of course, there's been a lot of transition in that over two decades. Um, but, you know, it, it was not defined by if you're in, you know, if you're in fast casual when fast casual emerged, it was the new shiny new penny. So if you are in fast casual, then you're going to have the best results. And the truth was anything but that. Yeah. Um, so how did how did you get how did you get? It's so it's so great talking about. I mean, I know you, so I know these these conversations. But you 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 speak so well about it and eloquently about it. You know, how did you get started in in the in, with TDN two K, and then how did you apply that to the restaurant industry? Right. A, a, there was probably a period of time when you weren't immersed in the restaurant industry. So how how did you get started here? Well, the, you know, the, I, I have to go back to People Report. So when People Report was founded, to be very honest with you, I had worked in the restaurant industry. I had been, you know, a lot of different roles, but um, a lot of them were roles that were in HR. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I looked at, and I was running a, a company um, at the time, my partner was Roz Mallet who a lot of your, you know, a lot of your listeners may know Roz. Mm -hmm. um, she was chief people officer for Carlson companies. Um, she's now an entrepreneur running her own business. Um, but Roz and I were partners and, you know, we would be working with these companies and we would sit around and say, you know what, these are the same problems that people had 10 years ago, 15 years ago. These are the same, you know, we're not doing anything different. We're not changing. And at the time, we were tracking management turnover rates in, you know, the mid-30s, high 40s. Um, it's like, how do you run a business when you're turning over 35 to 40% of your managers right. in a year? Yeah. And so it was for me personally, Jason, it was like, you know what? It was a moment in time when you said either do something to make it better or get the hell out of it. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it really was that clear. It's like, look, you can't continue to just sit around and complain about the fact that we're, we're still stuck in the mud here. Um, so that was the, you know, that was the beginning of, of people report and in the restaurant industry itself, you know, at that time and certainly today, I mean, everything is measured. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to open, you know, a, a hot dog stand at walk and don't walk, you would know traffic, you would know consumer profile, you would know, you know, price competitive pricing within uh, you know, two block radius or whatever you needed to know. You, all that stuff was available. But again, we had no metrics on the HR side. So it was like, okay, that model seems to be working over here um, in all these other areas of the business. Maybe we can apply it to HR. Yeah. And so you fast forward today. So you begin to you begin to document some of those HR metrics and blend those with the business metrics. As you fast forward to today, you know what are those what are those big challenges? today for for your business specifically what are the big challenges in your business and then in in the businesses of your members you know what are they what are they struggling with so biggest challenges in our business you know i'll go back to speed of change um we're entrepreneurs we get up with our hair on fire every day 
Um, you know, one of my colleagues is fond of saying there's always somebody in a hoodie in a garage someplace that's getting ready to put you out of business. Right. You know, right. it's like it is, you know, as we made the shift into the world of technology, um, you, you put yourself on a completely different competitive playing field. And, you know, we have been in this business uh, long enough to see a lot of technology solutions come and go. Um, and either because they just couldn't, you know, they couldn't get the funding at the right time or they, you know, it seemed like a good idea five years ago, but it's not really a good idea anymore or the market was too slow or, you know, it's like it, there are a lot of things there just from the standpoint of speed of change in technology that, um, you know, we deal with every day. And the, and along with that, also accelerating is just convergence in the industry. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's, a, you know, you have solutions converging every day. And so, you know, we are focused on innovation, but we are focused on, you know, what we describe as relentless, relevant innovation. And we had to be taught that lesson the hard way. Uh, which is just because you think something's cool doesn't mean that your, you know, your member thinks it's cool. Doesn't mean that, and it doesn't mean they're going to pay you for it. (laughs) They may say, yeah, that's that's cool. Uh Uh-huh. And so, no, it's not in my budget. (laughs) We're not going to pay you for it. Right. Yeah, you have to you so, have to let the market tell you, right? And and you have all these ideas mm-hmm. and you have to get them out there as quickly as possible, but you have to let the market guide you in in a way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so again, you know, we have now tracked through uh, you know, we tracked through the dot com bubble, we tracked through obviously Post 9/11, we tracked through recession, we tracked through recoveries, we've tracked through, and you know our our member companies who are primarily these chain, you know chain restaurant operations, are dealing with all the issues of certainly of the economy and the economic, you know ebbs and flows, mm-hmm. um, but also the changing consumer. And, you know, we've had this demographic tsunami that's gone on. You know, I can remember when we used to put slides up about what 2020 would look at, right. would look like, and people's eyes would blaze over. It's like, who cares? <laughs> right. You know, it's like, well, unless you want to turn into Japan, you should probably care. Right. And, but even, you know, sometimes I think, oh, well, who does care? Well, it's 2018. Mm-hmm. So all these chickens have come home to roost, and they've come home in in much bigger ways than any of us, I think, ever could have possibly imagined. Um, you know, one of my very favorite books of all time is Alvin Toffler, Future Shocks, mm-hmm. which was written in 1980. You go back and read it. I was like, how did this guy do this? This is freaky. Um, you know, John Nesbitt, Megatrends. Ditto. Um, so this has all come home to roost for us. So all of a sudden, you know, operations, you know, to, to operate a restaurant, some things are exactly the same. I mean, the inside the four walls, it's still, you know, and you will get restaurant operators who will talk to you about hot food, hot and cold food, cold. And, you know, and, and that's all the same. But the customer is completely different. The employee is completely different. You know, mobile is just knocking this industry to its knees um, as we try to figure that all out. Um, so tell tell and, me about that. How how is mobile knocking the? And I think you mean the restaurant industry. How is mobile knocking the restaurant industry to its knees? Well, we have we're certainly at the point in time when I want what I want when I want it how I want it, mm-hmm. and I expect it to be. Um, Immediate would be good, but I'll wait, you know, 15, 20 if I have to. Mm-hmm. And so how does a restaurant respond to that? So that's why, you know, you pull into the McDonald's next to our office. There's a drive-through. 
which is, you know, quite full and always has been. There's a um, call-in where you've texted or called. And there's a place to pick those orders up. And then there's, you know, and then you look in the restaurant, there's nobody in it. Um, mm-hmm. Everybody's outside going to their assigned venue to get their food. And so as, you know, you try to balance, I want to order on my phone. Um, I want to, you know, do I use a third-party service? You know, what about Uber Eats? What about Grubhub? What about, you know, do, do I utilize those? Do I deliver it myself? What's involved in that? Um, just balancing all that is an enormous complexity for our industry. We had we saw statistics a couple weeks ago about the um, the meal kits, the Blue Aprons mm-hmm. and HelloFresh and some of those companies. And you know that was originally thought to be a major disruptor, and it's turning out not to be a major disruptor because what happens is people still have to actually do the work of cooking a meal. Right, and that's not what um, they want to do. That's not what they wanted. Right. They just wanted the meal. <laughs> right. So. So that has passed, and you know that's a classic example of what was the hot technology mm-hmm. even eighteen months ago, um, but the delivery has continued to escalate mm-hmm. so we um, you know you just mentioned two big two big industry changes right meal kits and and mobile do you think those those are two things? What what have been some of the biggest changes in your career? I mean, is it today with mobile and social? Was it ten years ago with some technology that I don't know existed? Like what what is your what, what's what, what are some of those big changes that you've seen? Well, and and this is personally and for our business. I you know social. Uh, social is, has been seismic and, um, you know, the impact that it's had on all of us, the impact that it's had on, um, the workplace, you know, again, books, um, I think it was 2006. It was either 2005 or 2006. Jeffrey Peffer wrote a book that was called, um, Oh, it was hard facts, half truth, and total nonsense. <laughs> okay. And for anybody who's in the data and information business, that is a textbook for starters. But one of the questions that we, that he posed in that book was, is work different than life and should it be? Mm-hmm. Yep. And so he was starting the question, the whole idea that you park your, you know, you park the rest of your life at the door when you walk in the door. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, in terms of structuring our workplaces, well, of course, what we know is we were starting to see this incredible emergence of the remote worker. We were starting to see the emergence of 24-7 connectivity. Um, and we were starting to see the impact of the onslaught of information, data, and content. Um, So in the time that we have been in business, we have gone from, you know, I described it before, we've gone from driving with our eyes closed or no information to TMI. Mm -hmm. And we crossed TMI at least five years ago. Right. (laughs) And it's been that fast. It's been that fast. And you think about the existing, the existence of um, insights, executives, insights departments, mm-hmm. insights, and in, they didn't exist 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, but now we have, we are swimming in so much data and information that you need a team of people just to tell you what any of it means or what part of it you should pay attention to. Or God forbid, what part you should act on. 
Right. I was just you know, talking to two two clients this week, uh, two outmatch clients this week, who both have data analysts in their in their HR departments. So they don't mm-hmm. they don't even go borrow them from you know wherever the data analysts no. used to sit in finance or IT. They they actually have them sitting on their team so that they can make sense of this data that you're talking about and and how to and how mm-hmm. to use it to their advantage to grow their businesses. Mhm. No, exactly. And you know, and and we're in the midst of that that transition. You know, um, Sherry Turkle, the woman who's the professor of AI at MIT, mm-hmm. she wrote the book Alone Together, and she predicted this whole we were going to end up with all these ways to connect, all this information, and we're going to be sitting there, you know, staring at a phone trying to figure out what any of it means. <laughs> what am I supposed to do next? <laughs> and what should we do with it? Yeah. Right. She also has some, yeah, she, she has some really cool research about how humans actually learn to relate to AI. And she tells the stories. And of course, most of them come from Japan because that's where most of the bots are because they need them. But she tells the stories of how people almost immediately begin to try to curry favor with their care bots. And so if you and I are sitting in a room together with a bot, we're going to be, whether it's conscious or not, we start to try to be the preferred, you know, the preferred human. Yeah, we're flirting with the robots. We are flirting with robots. Yeah. That's a complete aside, but I think it's very interesting. All right, so so I'll, I, I would love to. Talk I got about, you completely off track. Well, I Sorry would love to that. talk about flirting with robots because that's actually probably more interesting than anything else. But um, to, to get to get back on track a little bit, so okay, so we've just talked for uh, Sorry. Sorry. we've talked for a half an hour here. We've talked about lots of books, lots of data, lots of people that um, that are involved with TDN2K, and it just strikes me that. Um, you are incredibly active. You read a lot. You you know a lot of people. You've had a lot of experiences. I, I'd be interested to just understand more about how, how do you manage your day, right? If, if you're if you're running a company, how do you have time for all the other things that you described? How organic is that in your life? How you know is your work and life? How are they connected? Just like what's a day in the life of Joni Doolin look like? Mm. It's a mess. <laughs> no, it's, you know, Jason, I, I I will share this and I will give a shout out to this um, part of HR. And that is um, the whole idea of using coaching, hmm. whether you use, you know, a life coach, whether you use you know, in some cases, it's an executive coach. I really don't like the concept of executive coaching because typically what that means is we'd really like to fire somebody, but we're going to give it a shot here to get them where they need to be before that happens. Okay. Um, that's not always the case, but, you know, if, if executive coaching is part of an overall development plan, it can be very effective. Um, life coaching can be very effective. So I'll go back to when... Um, Lou Kosick, who you and I both know well, yep. um, had just founded his Coaches Collective International. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was after he left his career as Chief People Officer at Applebee's. And he wanted to talk to our Best Practices Conference about life coaching. And I said, mm, I don't know about that. <laughs> I said, you know what? If we're going to talk about that, I need, could I experience it? Can you connect me to one of your coaches? And so he did. Um, and uh, within about three conversations with this woman, it became screamingly apparent that my biggest obstacle, um, just in terms of life, and career and business was the whole lack of routine and balance Mm. in my life. And I was like, well, I never, 
I'm, I'm in a different place all the time. I'm in, you know, um, and, and at the time, you know, as you know, um, our chairman, Wally Doolin, also happens to be my husband. Um, at the time, though, we weren't working together. He was still working in a corporate job. Um, I was an entrepreneur. We were traveling all over the place. And it's like, how do you create anything that has any semblance of routine and thoughtfulness when so we evolved to and this is the long answer to your short question yeah. what we evolved to was a concept called a chosen set of practices so a chosen set of practices that you take with you no matter where you are mm -hmm. and so i adopted and what worked for me and gradually have tried to, I, I firmly believe in the whole concept of habit stacks and, you know, one good habit leads to another. Okay. Um, and so, you know, have took the initial practices and have built on them in the intervening 10 years, which is what has worked for me personally. Um, and, you know, and mornings, mornings for me are precious. If I miss a morning, I, you know, the rest of the day doesn't go well. Mm -hmm. um, and there are things that I do personally. There are things that I do for my health. There are things that I do, you know, um, depends if my dog's with me or not. You know? <laughs> but, right. but those morning, the morning habits are really precious and important. What I am learning currently is that, and I have never done this and I've never been good at it, that the evening habits are possibly even more important mm -hmm. in terms of review and setting, you know, resetting and setting intention for the following day. So, you know, you, and how much uh, better that day will be. That's it's interesting. Is most of most of what I hear and what I read is about mornings, and I I love to mm -hmm. learn new things and hear new things like that because it. it it makes intuitive sense, but it also probably makes a lot of sense as you as you try to wind yourself down first for for recharging. You know, your brain needs to sleep and, and recharge. Would you mind sharing uh, a couple of a couple of items from your morning or evening habit stacks? No, I wouldn't. Um, I do make my bed every morning, <laughs> and it was long before somebody wrote a book about it. Right. Um, and and I make my bed if I'm in a hotel room. And I actually used to use that question when I did development workshops for executives was, you know, if we were, it's like, I would ask, how many people made your bed this morning? And it was you, the people in the room that looked at you and said, we're in a hotel. Why right. would I make my bed? Right. To the one or two people who would sheepishly put up their hand and say, I did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which, and every, it, it's all for different reasons. Um, you know, mine is a habit that I actually tied to the memory of my dad, mm. because when my dad retired, he announced, he said, your mother's been making the bed for 40 years. <laughs> I'll make it now. So he started to make the bed. He started to make the bed. And the day I walked into their house and the bed wasn't made, I knew it was going to be his last day. And it was. Oh, and so I always, it's just like I make my bed and I think about my dad and get my day off to a good start. Oh, but good I journal, you know, okay. journaling is really, really key to me and it gets more and more key over time. Um, you know, I have learned that, you know, the, the whole digital, uh, you know, the digital addictions are absolutely stripping creativity. Mm. Um, we're, we're killing it. We're, we're just killing it for ourselves. And so the whole process of a pen to paper um, and taking the time to think about those thoughts. This year, um, I throw this out for anybody that wants something new. I started using the um, the Daily Stoic Journal. Mm -hmm. um, Daily Stoic, Ryan Holiday, The Obstacle is the Way, Stoicism, you know, there's, you know, whatever you're into, but but what has been most powerful for me about it is it's a guided journal. 
Okay. So it actually asks you in the morning, so how are you going to handle this aspect of your life today? What can you, you know, what can you release from, you know, it's a guided question. And it's interesting how that changes the dynamic of your daily journal. It's really, it's been pretty powerful. And I don't know if I'll always do it. I think this is a 365 day deal. I'll do it and then reevaluate. But, but that's part of it. Um, you know, water's part of it. Really good coffee is part of it. Um, yoga or walking is part of it. You know, just getting moving. Mm-hmm. Um, probably the biggest change that I've made, uh, recently is not recently, but it's been for a while now is just blocking the time before I will have a meeting, have a phone call, check an email. Mm-hmm. Um, just saying, you know what? And, and of course everybody doesn't have that luxury, but the more that you can choose that luxury, um, and you know, some of it may involve getting up earlier, but right. uh, it, well, it makes a huge difference in the outcome of the day. Yeah. I mean, those, those things are great. And, and it's a good list of stuff. I, I often think like, gosh, how early do you have to get up to do that? But that's really not the issue, right? The issue is you are making a choice to do those things mm-hmm. over, over other things. So, mm-hmm. you know, you have the time, you just have to choose mm-hmm. to do this activity within that time. Right. Yeah. No, you do. And it's, and yeah, you do. And it's interesting. There's, you know, um, Oh, Burchard just published High Performance Habits. It's a, you know, it's his newest work. And, you know, he talks about the fact, he said, you know, everybody's trying to latch on to the the morning routine that will change their lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he said, the morning routine is not going to change your life. (laughs) (laughs) It is the intention and purpose that's going to change your life. You know, so whether or not you take a cold shower in the morning, like, you know, I don't know who takes cold showers, Tony Robbins or somebody, yeah, but Robbins. yeah, it's, that's probably not going to do it for you. I don't know how clean you'd get. Cause I feel like you're probably not going to be in there very long if it's that cold, <laughs> you know, I don't know. I haven't a cold rinse. Maybe right. I have not adopted cold, right. yeah, cold showers. So, um, do you have a mentor today that you still that you still work with I have an amazing tapestry of colleagues advisors um, you know people that are you know just have always been kind and generous with time and advice you know, and, and, you know, I, I have a tapestry of those folks. I mean, I had the privilege to work with Jack Fitzsen, um, for, you know, seven or eight years just to have him as an advisor after, you know, what he had accomplished in, um, you know, the, the whole idea of human capital, mm-hmm. um, and and that was you know and still is I mean it's it's really really powerful. I I lost a great mentor um, a couple years ago um, when Fritzay Woods passed. Um, she was she was powerful and you know Fritzay was you know and I've written about this a couple times. She was always the one who would say what. You know, we can do more. We can do better. Mm-hmm. You know, and in a way that would make you think, you're right, we can. How do we get there? You know, I mean, she was incredibly supportive and incredibly, but um, just a, you know, somebody who had true north in a way that very few people do. I mean, she was just absolutely crystal clear where her true north was. And she was really good at helping you find yours. Um, and I have, the, you know, and I also have the joy that my business partner is my husband. Mm-hmm. And so, 
Um, if anything, the, the, the trick there is shutting off the conversation. <laughs> Um, because yeah. you know you gotta draw. It's like okay, <laughs> enough. Right. So did, did I need you, another cup of coffee. Right. So so to to weave this tapestry of mentors are these people you went out and and asked to become mentors that you went to seek out, or did it just happen organically as you got to know people and build relationships with them? In some cases, yes. Um, you know, one of the blessings in my life is because of our thought leadership, I get to engage with a lot of authors and speakers and people who, you know, have pretty large public presence and get to spend, a, you know, spend some time and then ultimately, you know, you know, ultimately with some of those folks, they have ended up being personal you know, mentors and advisors and, um, you know, but I'm, I think, you know, I think I have probably shied away from, I mean, I know the best advice about finding a mentor is that you have to go find them. You have to ask them, um, you know, there are, I think there has to be more than that. Mm-hmm. And maybe some of it is I'm just not really good at asking somebody, well, what can you do for me? Um, that I think that what has to come first is you have to give. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what we miss a lot of times in the whole idea that, so, well, I need a mentor, so I just need to ask someone to do it. It's like, well, no, actually what you need to do is, you know, be valuable to that person first. Yep. Uh, sorry, I'm just, I, you were just talking about the creativity of paper and pencil. I'm sitting here writing things down and I got caught up in my own writing notes about what you just said. So sorry, sorry for the dead air, but, um, that's good. You know, what, what you give is important and I, um, that's what you do. I, I just, I think about your global best practices conference that you do and I'm amazed at how, how much giving there is. Obviously, that's by design. Help? Can you help us understand the origins of that meeting? Sure. I mean, the you know, I, I mentioned a you know a few minutes ago about the the impact that social had on me personally, but also on our business. And you know, social made it possible to really, really create and nurture and develop and, you know, serve a community, you know, in in ways that just never would have been possible before. And so, you know, we knew, I mean, that was the, the genesis of Summer Brand Camp. Summer Brand Camp was created because we knew that digital was completely blowing up, you know, the ways that we communicated. It was blowing up, you know, everything about HR, obviously. And, and Summer Brand Camp, um, just for people who don't know, Summer Brand Camp is one of your events that you that you did as, as TDN2K. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And it was also the tagline for Summer Brand Camp, which pretty much, except for the fact that it was the most fun you would ever have at a conference. Um, yeah, it was pretty fun. You know, the tagline... Yeah, it was pretty fun. The the tagline for it was workplace, marketplace, one place. And that was when we really, really started, first of all, to realize, you know, and understand the power of of integrating this employee and consumer data um, and recognizing that your employees are your consumers and your consumers, I mean, it's like they, you know, the, We've talked about that for years, but we've never really gone much further than giving it lip service. And so all of that started, you know, just exploding um, in, you know, back in 2009, 2010. And so with Summer Brand Camp and with our other events and with the tools that all of a sudden we had to communicate and connect, um, we were really able to focus on community and we always started the community with service 
Um, and, you know, our, you know, as a company, you know, every employee in our business understands that they, you know, they work to stun our members. And, you know, it's like Netflix, Patty McCord had the concept of stunning colleagues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I talk about that a lot. It's like, I want, I want this team to look around the room and say, wow, I can't believe I'm in this room. Yeah. Um, because they're stunning colleagues. Well, you know, the, the community in, in many respects, and, and you can't get as granular, but the community is stunning also. I mean, you, you get to bring together some pretty incredible leaders. Um, and, you know, it's what gets us up in the morning. Well, it, it certainly is true just from a person who's been, had that experience of being at those events, um, to, to look at the people in the room and just understand the experience they have in leadership in some of these huge companies, but they are approachable people, <laughs> you know, not, not mm-hmm. CEO of such and such. I can't go speak to them. Um, and I think that's what partly what makes it stunning. The service is partly what makes it stunning in my experience too. So thank you for explaining those things. Mm-hmm. So, uh, two, two more, two more questions for you before we, before we wrap up. So the first question I have for you is um, if, if people want to reach out to you and, and learn more or connect, you know, they can go to your Twitter handle, which is at Lucky Penny. And so, um, my Twitter handle happens to be my name. So, so, so how did you come, how did you come upon Lucky Penny as a Twitter handle? What does that mean to you? And what does that mean to us as we, as we type it in and connect? So it means that in 2008, when the wheels were coming off the economy business, we were sitting around wondering if we would have a business. <laughs> um, you know, people, people were under their death. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and nobody was traveling. Yeah. Nobody, you know, all the travel budgets got canceled. Yep. You know, people were generally afraid. Mm-hmm. And, so at the time, I was sitting actually where I am today in St. Michael's, Maryland, so the eastern shore of Maryland, feeling very isolated. And two dear friends who many of, you know, many of your listeners know, Amanda Height, mm-hmm. who is the founder of Be the Change Revolutions, who, you know, is, uh, she has been committed to change through you know, digital and change, you know, m- not just change, but movements through digital mm-hmm. for her career. And um, Avery Block, who has runs digital branding for uh, consumer and employee over at Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. So at the time, you know, I talked to them and said, you know, I, I, I just don't know what to do. And Twitter, as you recall, was just starting and they said well you should just get on this twitter and then we'll be able to communicate with one another and we'll be able to you know share with people and it's a good place to get the pulse and it's like yeah but you know i just i don't i don't really you know it's i i don't know i didn't feel confident about it and they said well just i said what's your dog's name it's like lucky penny (laughs) and she said well just Put up Lucky Penny. So and, I, should, I should be asking so, the origin of your dog's name. <laughs> Lucky Penny. Right. When we adopted her, her name was Penny. I don't uh, think she knew what her name was. She was a rescue dog. <laughs> and so I thought, what the heck? We'll call her Lucky Penny because she just got lucky. And so did we. And anyway, so it became Lucky Penny. It stuck. And at a point in time, it just, you know. It hasn't changed. And every once in a while, I trial balloon that with my marketing team and my digital team. And so far, they think I should keep it. So. Yeah, don't ju- don't change it. Don't change it because whatever <laughs> it's going to be isn't going to be as uh, – it'll be more it'll be more forced, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, it won't be as memorable. Right, as right. 
Oh, thanks for that. And then, and then the last, the last question is I had two, but the last question is, um, what, what advice would you give to somebody starting their career? And it's not necessarily starting their career in HR, just starting their career. You know, what, what is, what would be your advice to that person? Well, this is really interesting. I mean, we hire, I mean, we have a lot of 20 somethings in our company. And I just continue to be more amazed by them, you know, every person that joins our team. They're remarkable. But they have one thing in common, and that is they have graduated, whether, you know, formal, in most cases it's formal, some cases informal, but they know how to communicate. You know, they know how to have a conversation. They know how in most cases to write mm-hmm. they know how to learn you know and, and that's the big and when when what we learned in college you know four years ago has now been replaced by you know new software new technology new whatever it is i mean somebody was making a joke about the fact that they didn't teach seo and marketing um i mean maybe they taught it when you went to school but it's like no, no it, it's no. Well, so, you know, all of that, it changes so fast. So we have to be continuous learners mm-hmm. and, you know, that continuous learner, that mindset that, no, I'm sorry. I know you've been in business for 15 years, but guess what? You still have to learn new things, right? you know, or even 20 years, or I know you're a vice president of something, but you still have to learn new things. And, um, you know, I think that that is what is of most valuable when people come in to, you know, your organization. And companies that hire for very, very, very narrow skill sets, um, I, I think, you know, it, it places them at a disadvantage in, in a lot of respects. Because at some point that skill set isn't going to match. Mm-hmm. Because how, because how fast everything is changing. So back to your careers, um, you know, this is a world where you can count on not just your job changing, you know, dozens of times, but you can count on your actual, you know, your your job function changing dozens of times because that's the pace and change of business. That's what the world needs and that's what the market is calling for. You know, I do think that we are at, and and this is, you know, maybe more germane to HR, but um, I think across functions, I think we're about to hit a moment in time when everybody is going to get really, really, really over what we can do with an algorithm Mm -hmm. and go back to what can we do by putting the human back in human resources, back in, you know, human business. you know, you see that trend starting to play out in a lot of the more prescient brands. And um, so, again, it's going to come back to, you know, the softer skills, perhaps, but they're going to become increasingly important. That's great. That's In my that's humble great opinion. Yeah, no, that's that's great advice. And I think, you know, we... We started the conversation talking about change and we ended it talking about continuous learning and that's just great bookends for this conversation and to understand a little bit more about who you are and how you built a business and, and how you work with your members and, and, and other people in the community. So, um, Joni, really, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I, I, I've got, I could, I could go on for another hour talking to you, but, uh, I feel like- <laughs> That, that'll have to be off tape, right? So we'll do that somewhere. That'll have to be off the tape. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Thanks again, Joni. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. And thank yes. you for all the work that you're doing as well to make us all better. Thanks for listening to the Talent Playbook Podcast with our guest, Joni Doolin. Want to learn more about Joni and TDN2K? 
So you can follow Joni on Twitter, at Lucky Penny. And to learn more about TDN2K, simply visit their website, tdn2k.com. You can listen to other episodes of the Talent Playbook Podcast at iHeartRadio or SoundCloud, Spreaker, YouTube, Libsyn, and the Outmatch.com website in the streaming menu at the top of the page. I'd like to thank our producer and engineer, Charles Summers. And I also should mention that this podcast has crossed the 1,000 download threshold. So I owe you, the listener, a great big thank you for the time you spent listening to this content. Until next time, this is Jason Ferrara saying thanks for listening. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.